This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Dr. Peter Drotman, Editor-in-Chief of the Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal. I'm talking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute on Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. He is located today in uh, uh, his home office, Bethesda, Maryland. He's uh, one of the most prominent and well-known uh, clinicians, researchers, and uh, public policy leaders in the field of uh, uh, public health infectious diseases over the past several decades. He and Robert Isinger have an article in the March 2018 issue of uh, the EID Journal, and it has the rather optimistic title of Ending the HIV-AIDS Pandemic. The very first sentence of the paper says that ending that pandemic is theoretically achievable. What makes you optimistic about this? Well, the reason I'm, I'm uh, optimistic that it is possible, uh, I'm somewhat reserved on how we're going to get to the end game. But the reason for the optimism is that we now have the tools which have been proven in a variety of clinical trial settings that actually can give you the ammunition if implemented in an aggressive and sustained way to actually turn around the trajectory of the epidemic. So let me just very briefly explain a couple of those tools. So we know that we have adequate therapy, more than adequate, we have superb therapy that if taken as directed and consistently can decrease the level of virus in an individual to below detectable level. So you could essentially save the life and prevent illness in the individual person. We also know that when you decrease the level of virus to below detectable level, it makes it virtually impossible for that person to transmit the virus to someone else. We call that treatment as prevention. We also know that we have very interesting and efficacious means of preventing infection in high-risk individuals, such as by pre-exposure prophylaxis with a single pill. If taken, again, religiously the way one should, the efficacy of that is well over 95% and maybe even approaching 97 or more percent. So theoretically, if we could identify all the people who are infected, and I know that's a prodigious task, get them on therapy, decrease the level of virus to below detectable level, and get those individuals who are at high risk to take pre-exposure prophylaxis. If you do mathematical models of that, you can actually turn around the trajectory of the epidemic. The difficulty is that it is quite complicated to universally implement that throughout the world in various regions where there may not be the adequate healthcare infrastructure to do that. But you can certainly do it in select places. So that's the basis for the optimism that it can be done. But what we have is what I call an implementation gap. We have the tools, but we really have not been able to fully implement it to the degree to get the effect that we want. And your article goes into many of the challenges that uh, 
various practitioners and leaders around the world who are working on this issue face. One that uh, is not specifically covered in your article, and it's not a coincidence that this article is in the uh, March issue of the journal, because that is annually our World TB Day issue, is in fact tuberculosis. HIV and TB overlap in uh, epidemiologic and other ways. How, how do those two serious public health problems interact to uh, influence each other? Well, they, they, uh, that's an excellent point, and TB and HIV interact and interdigitate with each other in a very profound and impactful way because, as we know, the statistics are really rather stunning that tuberculosis alone in and of itself is the leading uh, cause of infectious diseases death in the world. That's number one. And if you look particularly in regions of the world, such as sub-Saharan Africa, a substantial proportion, 30% or more of the individuals who die with HIV infection die of tuberculosis. So if you're in Southern Africa, let's such, such as in KwaZulu-Natal in uh, South Africa, the major issue you have in HIV is tuberculosis. So whenever you talk about HIV, particularly in settings of the developing world, you have to be considering tuberculosis and vice versa. Now, we are having this discussion in 2018, which happens to be the 100-year anniversary of one of the worst events in, uh, in human history, the uh, uh, 1918 influenza pandemic. I have heard you speak in previous uh, venues about uh, uh, how the 20th century was sort of bookended by influenza at the beginning and HIV-AIDS at the end. Uh, what uh, is your uh, take on what lessons that we should be learning from, the, from those two epidemics to prepare perhaps for the end of HIV and to avoid the next influenza pandemic? Well, Peter, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and, 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 and you brought it up in a very appropriate way about, about bookends for the 20th century. And I think uh, if you look at these individually, they represent a common denominator of an emerging infectious disease, which is challenges that we've always had, we continue to have, and we will always have. But they're very different in how they emerge and their impact. So if you look at the 1918 influenza pandemic, it was a very abrupt, it was very cataclysmic, and it was devastating. Historically, for the single year to year and a half in which we had the death and devastation of the 1918 pandemic, it clearly is the most devastating single infectious disease event. I mean, we have infectious diseases over history, malaria, smallpox, measles, that devastate over years, and you have cumulative morbidity and mortality. But with the pandemic of 1918, it was an explosion of, of death and suffering in a very confined period of time. Now, when you look at HIV, 
HIV, as we all know, who have been there from the very beginning, was a very insidious, or at least insidious in its recognition, emerging infectious disease, where we had a brand new disease which essentially creeped up on us to the point where when it reached its fullness, it turns out again, like the pandemic of 1918, to be one of the most important, I would say, less than a handful of the most important infectious diseases, emerging diseases in the history of our civilization. But they occurred in very different circumstances with very different populations that would get impacted by it and with very different results, both from the standpoint of the type of disease, but the length of time it took to realize the full impact of the disease. And yet, they are both truly emerging infectious diseases. One of the uh, topics that is raised in your HIV uh, ending the pandemic paper is prospects for and progress toward developing an HIV vaccine, which we don't really have yet. Whereas for influenza, we have a zillion vaccines. It's just that they're not all that good or long-lasting. Can you tell us about uh, progress in either one of these uh, vaccine uh, uh, research efforts? Okay, so let's start off with probably the most problematic, very briefly, HIV vaccine. One of the issues with HIV is that unlike other infectious diseases for which we have developed highly effective vaccines, smallpox, polio, measles, the human body, when it gets infected with these, you may have morbidity, you may have mortality, but at the end of the day, the body clearly proves to you and, and essentially establishes a proof of concept that it is capable of ultimately suppressing the virus, eradicating the virus, and rendering on the person the immune response that protects them from getting infected with the same pathogen again. That's the fundamental basis of proof of concept that a vaccine, the right type of vaccine, can induce a response that ultimately would be protective. And I think that's the reason why we were confident that sooner or later we would get vaccines for smallpox, for polio, for measles, and other pathogens. With HIV, it's a different story because for reasons that are very complicated, many of which we don't understand, the body does not make a very good immune response against HIV that's protective. It certainly makes an immune response, but it doesn't on its own suppress the virus. It doesn't certainly eradicate the virus. So I remember when I was in medical school, my, my mentors and teachers used to say, when you're making a vaccine, the best thing to do is to mimic natural infection without hurting the patient. That's exactly what you don't want to do with HIV because if you mimic natural infection, you'll get a response that's inadequate just the way the response to natural infection. So we have a major challenge with an HIV vaccine is to make a vaccine that would be doing even better than nature could do to present whatever antigens we present or immunogens to the immune system to induce a response that's even better than what natural infection induces. Now, in contrast, with influenza, as you mentioned correctly, the influenza is a different story. 
because we know the body can make a good response against influenza because the body's immune system clears influenza every time you have a person who gets infected with influenza, with few exceptions, those who go on to have very serious disease and die from it. But most of the people who get influenza, their immune response ultimately rescues them, as it were. That's the good news. The sobering news is that influenza, being an RNA virus that mutates a lot, changes and drifts from strain to strain, from season to season. And it also sometimes changes dramatically, and that's why we have a pandemic, which leads us to a different kind of challenge that we have with developing a a flu vaccine than we do with developing a HIV vaccine. And the challenge with a flu vaccine is to develop a vaccine that induces a response against that part of the influenza that doesn't change from subtype to subtype and doesn't change from season to season. We've been referring to that as a universal influenza vaccine, universal because it covers all iterations of influenza. Now, we've not been able to do that thus far. Uh, And in fact, as you mentioned correctly, the responses or the efficacy to influenza vaccines are certainly not optimal. On a good year, it's about 60% effective. And on a poor year, it can be anywhere from zero to 10% effective. We must do better than that. And I believe we can by getting the body to make a response against the part of influenza that doesn't change from season to season. So will you be writing a paper on ending future pandemics of uh, influenza? Well, I think we're going to hold off on that, Peter, until we get a really good universe of flu vaccines. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. Okay, thank you for, uh, for summarizing that. It's a very big topic area. I did want to ask you about one other thing, because one of the great friends of the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal was the late uh, Dr. Joshua Letterberg. And for our younger listeners who don't recognize his name, he won the Nobel Prize for Medicine 60 years ago this year, when he was only 33 uh, years old uh, for pioneering work in uh, molecular genetics. And he became a uh, uh, advisor to presidents, a prominent member of the Institute of Medicine, and in almost uh, single-handedly, but with others, established the field that we call emerging infectious diseases, and that is the name of our journal. He died uh, 10 years ago of uh, pneumonia in uh, 2008. Now, I think that you knew him and worked with him. Do you have any th- thoughts that you want to share with uh, our uh, uh, younger listeners and readers about the uh, his pioneering work and any inspiration he provided to researchers at NIH? Oh, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that, Peter, because I, as you indicated, I did know uh, Josh very well. Um, you know, he was obviously of a different generation than I, but he was very uh, interested in younger scientists and, and cultivating younger scientists, which back then uh, I was a very young scientist when I first met Josh. But the, the influence that he had on me 
is that he was talking about the dangers and the inevitability of emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases long before it became fashionable to do so. And I'll never forget that about Josh, because every time we used to talk about infectious diseases, which was often, uh, he would say, you really have to realize that we live in a world of microbes and we will have emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases that are unexpected, unanticipated, some of which will have a profound impact on the global health. And he used to say that at every chance he could get. And some people, understandably, but certainly incorrectly, thought that he was being hyperbolic and he was exaggerating. But if Josh were alive today and had seen what we're going through now with emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, you know, with HIV, with the resurgence of yellow fever, with Zika, with Ebola, with chikungunya, with West Nile, with plague in, in, in certain countries, uh, he would be nodding his head and probably say, I told you so. Th- thank you so much for these comments. We uh, appreciate it. And it shows that... Uh uh, we're just going to have to keep uh, keep working and keep publishing this journal and keep uh, soliciting more uh, more research reports of the of the sort that you have been uh, so instrumental in providing. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I've been talking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci about the March 2018 article on ending the HIV/AIDS pandemic. Listeners can read the March 2018 article on ending the HIV-AIDS pandemic. The article is online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Dr. Peter Drotman for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.